On this episode of the Vincast, I chat with wine writer Nick Ryan. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another episode of The Vincast. My name is James Gersbrook, otherwise known as the Intrepid Wino. And um, yeah, it's uh, great to hear from people that they've been um, enjoying new episodes of the podcast. Um, if you haven't already, I really uh, do appreciate it. Um, going on to whether it's iTunes or podcast app, um, Stitcher, Player FM, um, Deezer, um, there's Podbean. Um, you can listen to the podcast on um, Spotify, um, iHeartRadio. Pretty soon, you're going to be able to li- listen to it on Amazon as well. Um, but if, however, you listen to the podcast, um, if there is the opportunity for you to leave a rating and a review, uh, I really, really do appreciate it. Uh, it's great to hear from people, um, but if you can just take the time to um, to leave a rating and a review, uh, it really does help me um, kind of climb up the uh, the charts, as it were, and um, get exposed to more listeners because um, I'm really pleased to be able to and and privileged to be able to share the stories of so many amazing people involved in wine and uh you know and i'd love for more people to be able to listen uh so thank you very much obviously for everyone to listen uh and um for your support and uh yeah many more guests to come so uh for this new episode um i finally got a chance to chat with nick ryan who is a freelance freelance writer uh, based uh, now in the Clare Valley in South Australia. Uh, and I met him many years ago back when I was working in the marketing department for Domain Chandon. Uh, at the time, he was doing some uh, work with Gourmet Traveller Wine. And, uh, yeah, it was um, really great to be able to to, to, um, to Zoom chat with him and um, find out a bit more about his background, particularly the early days. So uh, I do I hope you enjoy this week's episode. Please stick around till the end to find out how you can get in contact with Nick and myself. But until then, I'll see you on the other side. Nick, thank you very much for, for uh, zooming in uh, from the Clare Valley and uh, joining me on the Vincast. My pleasure, James. Um, how are you doing? How's, how's lockdown treating you? Oh, it's glorious. Uh, you know, it's, I mean, I would say there's, I'm getting heaps done, but um, I think like my, like yourself, I've got, uh, I've got two young kids. So, uh, in, and one of them is uh, barely seven weeks old. So uh, um, I'm certainly keeping occupied with that, with that in itself. But, um, yeah, but yeah. no, it's, it's, it's lovely to be able to record some podcasts. Yeah, obviously, you know, I, uh, I've always preferred doing them in person. And uh, I think, uh, we were eventually going to get around to catching up when you were in Melbourne, but yeah. um, but I look, you know, now is a good time um, in, uh, in 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 lockdown, I guess, to do it via Zoom. Now that we have this wonderful technology, so it is. Uh, it's going it's going to be funny to see, you know, what happens when we, if and when we come out of the other side of this, about you know how much stuff is actually that we used to have to go and travel for. It's just going to be done by Zoom now. I think everyone's going to go well if we manage to do it for. The nine, twelve, eighteen months of COVID, we can we can just keep going that way. Well, yeah, like particularly businesses, they might kind of look at the way they were working before and say, "Look, we actually, you know, we've worked out sort of some workarounds, so we don't need you to be here all the time. So you know, we can do these kind of uh, Skypey type of uh, of meetings and whatnot." Well, that's it. And now, you know, that was one of the one of the key benefits of a, a career in wine writing was the ability to do it anywhere. Now that anyone can do their jobs from anywhere, you know, maybe yeah, exactly. we should start thinking about doing one of those real jobs that pay properly. <laughs> I, I wouldn't know what that's like. Uh, not no, at the moment, anyway. Um, but uh, I start every episode of the podcast by asking my guests if they can remember the the initial interaction I had with wine that um, had a bit more of a profound impact and potentially set them on that path towards working um, with wine in some way? Yeah, look, there's, there's several that um, I go back to. One is, one is um, 
achingly pretentious. But no, no it's just that um, it is wine after all. Yeah, well, I guess. So the, well, the first one I can remember tasting is Shadowy Chem. And only because um, you know, my father always had a bit of an interest in wine. He wasn't involved in wine professionally, but had an interest. And um, every year for their wedding anniversary, mum and dad would go out for dinner and, and dad would always try and get hold of a half bottle of Chem for dinner, you know, a special occasion. And it wasn't the stratospheric price that it is now and I just remember for some reason one year when I was about eight or nine plans changed at the last minute and they they couldn't go to the restaurant and they ended up just staying at home but they opened the bottle half bottle of Bikem anyway and I remember dad saying here you go try this um so that that that's still pretty vivid that memory um how, how I reckon I was about eight or nine um, can I just tell you, I think you're actually like the third person um, who's been on the podcast who's had a similar experience. And 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 indeed it was Ikem um, at, I think, under the age of 10. Uh, and that kind of level of residual sugar, that sweetness would have been quite appealing to. Well, that's it. Like, part yeah, of that's that it. Irrelevant yeah, to the right. alcohol. Yeah, I think rather than, you know, sort of, thumping big dry red, you know, that, that dad used to like to drink as well. I think if I was going to, you know, if there was any kind of gateway drug in this scenario, then probably chem is, is the right one to use. Oh, look, I remember even at the age of 18, 19, sort of having wine for probably the first time, particularly, you know, a, a red of, um, of, you know, late 90s, early 2000s and sort of really not liking it. It, it did take a little while for me to acquire a taste for, for wine. So, you know, a, a sweet wine, had I, had I um, been introduced to them, Potentially, I would have gone. Oh, this is great! Give me more. Yeah, yeah. Let's get more of that. Can I have more of that? And then I think Dad would have remembered what he'd paid for it and said no. <laughs> uh, um, whereabouts did you grow up? Oh, sorry, sorry. You uh, said, that was that was one. It was another one. Yeah, no, no. I, I, yeah, quickly. Well, that was you know, at that age, I was living in, in Port Augusta in country South Australia. My dad was a bush lawyer, and um, you know, so grew up. You know, the last sort of outposts of what you might call civilization, but that might sometimes be considered generous. Um, you know, before you hit the, you know, the, the bush, uh, it was you know, a great place to grow up, actually. We had a, had a really good time. Then I went down to um, school in Adelaide and the whole family then moved down to, to Adelaide when I started high school. And that's when the second experience we're talking about comes in because I went to the Jesuit school in Adelaide. So our year eight excursion was to the Seven Hill Winery here in Clare. Of course. Which was a bizarre, a bizarre place to take, you know, a bunch of, you know, 13-year-old boys. But the, the tour, and I remember it pretty vividly, is we, get, we go through the cemetery at Seven Hill first, and then we were taken through some of the old buildings, which you know, the old boarding school that was there is no longer has a better boarding school for more than 100 years. Um, and then Brother John May took us through the winery and, and gave us this lesson on, on, you know, how wine is made, you know, purely as a bit of a science lesson. And obviously we didn't taste anything. Uh, we did that. Then we had to have mass in the church there. And then we were all taken in um, small groups down to the crypt underneath the, underneath the church where all the previous Jesuit winemakers are buried. And there's one, <laughs> there's one open slot still there that is Brother John's. And he would point it out to us and tell us, oh, that one's mine. And just freak the shit out of these 13-year-old boys. It's a touch more, but it's is that like the Clare Valley um, version of, the, of uh, underneath, uh, is it St. Paul's Cathedral in, in the Vatican? Yeah, 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 it is. It's exactly <laughs> the same thing. And it's, and it's funny, you know, that obviously had some kind of impact because years and years later I was, judging the Adelaide Hills wine show and I looked around and there were six judges and the four of us had gone to school together and had done all, had all done that same sort of excursion. So, wow. uh, yeah, it was sort of me, it was Tara Sakota, uh, Paul Smith, who's at Wirra Wirra, uh, Dave Lemire, you know, everyone's sure. Former guest. Smith. And, and, oh, he's a good man, Dave Lemire. Very good footballer, Dave. That's what a lot of people don't know. Great we, footballer. We didn't talk about that on, on, on that episode. Oh no, he was, you know, he was, um, you know, he was even attracting as a schoolboy interest from, um, you know, AFL scouts. Yeah, right. So, um, and actually the only master of one I would think has coached an amateur league A3 premiership. 
he was captain coach until the first round of the finals where he got his ribs broken and uh, a lung punctured as captain coach of the Old Ignatians Football Club. So his wife of the time told him he wasn't allowed to play any more football, but he did coach into a premiership that year. Wow. Um, so, yeah, so that, 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 that Stephen Hill excursion obviously um, turned a bunch of us into, into booze hounds. But, I mean, if, if your parents were drinking half bottles of Ikem uh, for their anniversary every year, it sounds like that they had um, a little bit of an affinity to wine. Yeah, and- look, they did look. They, they, um, you know, my mother's an amazing cook. Um, and they've always, they just, you know, always loved food and wine. And I even I remember as a kid and, you know, even a place like Port Augusta in the 70s, which is, you know, very much, a, you know, an industrial town. A, it was a railway town, a, a power station town. Um, but there was, a, you know, this is very active little food and wine society, which I think, you know, probably was just a hell of a lot of boozing. And um, my mum has alluded to it at least one stage, one of the early meetings of that organisation where someone bought out a bowl and someone started chucking keys into it and mum grabbed my father and said, right, that's it, we're out of here. That's um, a shame. So I think, <laughs> on that one. Yeah, who knows? Yeah, this is the <laughs> um, so, yeah, so look, they always had a, you know, had a, had a bit of an interest and dad always had a, you know, a cellar and um, it was, you know, how I really started you know, my first steps into drinking wine was like so many people raiding the old man's cellar. But uh, I guess, you know, unlike a lot of um, kids, um, particularly from that era, uh, it sounds like there would have been a, at least a, an idea about having wine as a complement to food rather than just yeah. drinking it because it was alcohol. Yeah. And look, and dad always, you know, if mum had, you know, put something particularly special on the table and, you know, dad would, you know, pull out a nice bottle and, you know, give the kids a little, little taste as, as well. So it was, yeah, it was always, you know, something that, you know, you know, if the meal is, is, um, a, you know, suitable import and quality, then, you know, maybe you know, it should be some decent wine on the, on the table to go with it. So, um, yeah, I think that's a, that's a fundamental, um, mindset that you know if 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 that's in the house then there's a fair chance that it's going to rub off on, on the kids and and you'll end up in in the same way yeah uh sort of um coming through high school and 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 beyond um what sort of stuff were you into uh apart from you know socializing and <laughs> playing, from, playing sport and whatnot yeah look, i was you know a pretty sort of typical um teenager you know, I was playing a lot of footy and, and, and cricket at, at school but yeah, very much a um always been a reader from a, a really early age and um you know if I look back on a, on a pretty underwhelming school career the only things that were any you know any good were you know anything you know revolving around the written word numbers and formulas and equations and things are just you know just got no hope so look always you know had loved reading from an early age and and music i was always you know really interested in music and having um really been angry at my father for about 18 months for not letting me go and see kiss in 1980 <laughs> or whatever it was the school night he did take um had my brother and I to see David Bowie in 1983 at the Adelaide Oval, and I managed to, at the age of 12 to sneak white right up the front in my little after-school tracksuit thing and get right up to the front of the, the David Bowie on the serious Moonlight tour at the Adelaide Oval. Which was... No, no offence to Kiss or, or the Kiss Army, but um, I'm slightly more envious of that experience. I wish. In hindsight, yeah. Look, if I had to choose between one or the other, I'm glad it ended up being David Bowie. I did see Kiss. And Kiss is, years... Kiss is still Kiss is still touring, aren't they? They're not. They're not... <laughs> yeah, or well, still, yeah, putting their hands out and taking the money. I actually yeah. did see them years ago. <laughs> In early 2000s, I saw them in, in Sydney out at the showgrounds. I remember catching the bus out, uh, the train out from Central 
So the, the Royal Show was on at the time. So there's this amazing collection of people in moleskins and, and check shirts and, you know, and, and hats and people dressed up in, you know, kiss makeup and, and kiss makeup. So, but I actually remember going, I went with a mad mate who um, worked in advertising at the time. He goes, everyone's going to be in black t-shirts, these really elaborate kiss black t-shirts. So we're wearing white t-shirts with the names of each band member in Times New Roman on them. Thinking that was the plainest t-shirt you could possibly wear to a Kiss concert. That's about as hipster as you could get to a Kiss concert, I would think. Yeah, yeah, no, we, we, got, we certainly got some strange looks, but I, I still remember that concert, when they started coming out in the first sort of of um, Detroit Rock City starts, which I think is how they start every show for the last 40 years. And I was, eight, nine years old again and thinking, this is the greatest night of my life. <laughs> and about five minutes into it, I went, nah, that's just four fat old Jewish folks from New York in makeup just taking the cash. What a fucking brand though. Like, it's just amazing. <laughs> oh yeah. Like, and and, and they're, 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 they're shameless about it. They, um, you know, they're, they're, they're in it for the cash. Do you know who is the biggest, the biggest Kiss fan in the wine industry? Ned Goodwin. Another four, no, he did actually talk about that when he was on the podcast, going, yeah, going, yeah, going yeah. with his brother, I think. Yeah, yeah, and oh, no, and he, and like, he, he, he's, he's, you know, he has Ace Frehley's number in his phone, and, and you know, stuff like that. <laughs> so he's, um, yeah, no, Ned is, Ned is a mad, mad Kiss fan. He's a general in the in the Kiss army. Yeah, yeah, uh, more, yeah, brigadier. <laughs> <laughs> Ned's, Ned's more a brigadier, if anything, I think. Um, so, uh, post high school, um, did you, did you go away and study uni anything? Uh, yeah, look, uh, um, attempt uh, something uh, at least. If, if, if school was underwhelming academically, then university was even more so, like so much so that I actually got thrown out of an arts degree for not going enough. And when I tell people that, I'm usually, yeah, a lot of people who somehow managed to scramble through an arts degree, people just look at me in awe, like, seriously, that's, how can you be so lazy that you can't even finish an arts degree? Do they accuse you of being the biggest bong head at uni? Well, yeah, no, you know, I'm not saying, I, <laughs> I'm not saying I didn't inhale, but it, no, I never, I wasn't really, it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily, you know, my thing, although growing up in Adelaide in the, you know, the late 80s, it was, it was kind of everywhere. Um, but you know that and cereal chillies. That that yeah. Well, you used to be able to have thirteen plants growing in your backyard um, as as um, personal use. Wow. That was the that was the legislation here. If you were caught with you know and if thirteen full size plants growing in your backyard, you'd get a um a, a, like a traffic ticket for for each of those plants. But that would be it. Wow. And then that had to change because sort of bikies and organised crime started renting every house in a street and then, then planting 13 plants in each backyard. But um, yeah, Adelaide was very much a, a <laughs> that, is that, is that, town in those times. That's the equivalent of Breaking Bad in Adelaide in the late 80s. Yeah, it? pretty much. But it, it's a, no, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't a, um, it wasn't, you know, the marijuana that, that, that made me lazy. I was naturally lazy anyway. I'd, I'd sometimes go to university. If I couldn't get a park close enough, I'd just go home yeah fair enough and or you know go around to a mate's place and go let's go to the robin hood hotel for for a can of lunch so um reasonably underwhelming um yeah academic career lived in a lived in a share house in adelaide where everyone in that house and there was another house over the road full of great mates who all went on to do quite impressive things as you know a couple of federal politicians as a head of the Sydney Writers Festival and the head of the Adelaide Festival and Annabelle Crabbe and all these sort of people who went oh, on wow. lots of really good things. And um, yeah, I was the one that got thrown out of university. So that's, that's why, that's sort of, in a way though, it's the best thing that ever happened because it's the reason I'm in wine. Well, it's okay. Okay. Well, where did you go from there? And where, so, where, yeah. when, when and what motivated you? So this is the early, this is, uh, so it's late 93 that I get a, um, a certified letter from the university saying, look, don't you think you're holding up space for someone who might actually turn up? Um, and I um, 
then around the same time, a family friend who lived in Sydney was about to go and work in the US for six months and just happened to ring, you know, was talking to my mother and said, oh, look, has Nick finished his degree yet? My mother said, I've got no idea. He said, oh, look, you know, tell him if he wants to come and look after my house in, in Sydney for six months while I'm away, you know, he'd be more than welcome. And I went, yep, I'm going to go and do that. So that's what got me to Sydney. Then when she came back from the US, I had to find somewhere to go and live. And a couple of mates of mine were moving up from Adelaide. So we all got a sort of house together. And then I sat down thinking, right, I need to get a job to, to pay some rent and answered an ad for a bottle shop in King's Cross, a little place called Crundle Cellars. So, and that, um, and this is, this is it. I tell this story, you know, a lot. So Jeffrey was this um, classic old school English public school boy who had, um, you know, had, had come out to Australia in the sixties and worked as a jackaroo and fallen in love with an Australian girl or something and stayed. But he was, um, he was madly eccentric. He was incredibly cantankerous. Um, had this shambolic shop. He'd been he'd gone bust about three or four times, I reckon, Jeffrey, by the time I started working with him. He had this um, shambolic old shop, which is in a garage in Brougham Street in King's Cross, just off the um, off Victoria Street. And it had once been a a um, garage distillery that made home brand gin and vodka for, for David Jones because there was still all the labels stuck up in the kitchen there. Um, and he asked me to name seven grape varieties as part of a, a job interview. And I, and I, I could, and um, not, you know, because I was particularly, you know, okay with wine or, or interested in wine. It was just, you know, cause I'd grown up in Adelaide. And there's yeah, exactly. this osmotic, yeah, it's this osmotic thing that, um, yeah, because you'd grown up in Adelaide, yeah, you could do that, and you knew someone whose, you know, dad was a a, a winemaker, or you knew, you know, you'd been dragged around in the car while your parents went through McLaren Vale or or, or whatever else. So, you know, he said, I've just interviewed eighteen blokes, you know, who are going for this same job, and not one of them could do it, and I was genuinely surprised by that because it just seemed. You know, it was just Shiraz and Cabernet Sauvignon and Chardonnay. It wasn't, it was, yeah, I wasn't going into sort of, you know, kooky varieties. It was very much the white bread stuff. And, you know, that, that got me the job. That is something that's quite unique to Adelaide as far as state capital cities. Um, you know, unlike Sydney and Melbourne, which were probably, compared to Melbourne, I guess, um, even though the, the proximity to wine regions is, uh, you know, it's not that far it's a big enough city that there's lots and lots of different industries there. You know, Sydney, obviously proximity to wine regions and the industries. Um, and then Perth, Brisbane, Hobart, like they, they're all, you know, Hobart to some extent, but Adelaide agriculture uh, and, yeah, yeah. and wine is such an important industry to the city. And, 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 you know, you've got McLaren Vale, you've got Adelaide Hills, both within an hour, Barossa is not much further. It's easy yeah. enough for people to be still living in Adelaide city and commuting out. So there's, there's plenty of people oh, yeah, well, working in the industry or at least coming into contact with it in some way. That, that's it. I always say that cosmetic thing. The, po- the postcode in the country that probably has the highest percentage of winemakers in it is Unley Park in, 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 in Southern Adelaide. Cause you know, most of them, the guys in McLaren Vale with a bit of money anyway, or live in bloody Unley Park. So, um, yeah, look, it, it is, um, you know, I think Adelaide is, you know, because it's a bit smaller, because there's, you know, not a lot of other things necessarily going on, that it's very much touched by wine. Um, there are a lot of, you know, a lot of points where wine impacts on, on the life of the city. And it's, it's funny, uh, Leon Bignall, who is a former tourism minister and he's the member, his seat covers McLaren Vale and, and, and the Flurio and over to Kangaroo Island. He always tells the story that if you look at the carpet in, in, the, in the chamber of the South Australian Parliament, you know, this beautiful 150-year-old carpet that was put in there. When the, you know, um, and it is the, 
the, the motifs on the carpet are three things. It's a, it's a, a, a sheath of grain. It's a, a, um, a, a fleece from merino sheet and, you know, a bunch of grapes. And that has been, you know, a significant part of, of, of the parliament for, you know, its entire existence. The first part, you know, parliament that passed the Phylloxera Act in the 1890s. So, mm. you know, obviously these things have been, you know, important here for a long time. And, and you know, it is, it's, it's undeniably true that you, you do have a, an exposure to it growing up in Adelaide that's, that is kind of different than most places. You know, I used to, I used to go and sneak off to a party and, you know, still too young to go and buy my own booze, so still something out of Dad's cellar. And I knew that, I knew what Penfolds was, right? You know, that, that was supposedly going to be fancy. Uh, the stuff with the black labels and things on it, that was Henschke. So I used, to, I used to take the wines that looked like they had the cheapest labels, and that was Wendery. And so, you know, I'm, I'm 16 years old going to a party at someone's house because the parents are out, and I'm taking two bottles of... You know, Wendery. The, the, the daggy old-fashioned labels of Wendery. Yeah, and I, I, I told Tony Brady that story one day. I went, I've got to tell you this, Tony. It's a bit of a confession, and he loves that story. That you know, that, you know, and it, in a way, it's 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 part of the essence of Wendery too. That you know, the labels did look cheap because you know they just had changed for so long. So it's that it's that um inbuilt humility of the place that makes it special. So you started working uh, in in alcohol retail. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I still think I I loved and worked for Jeffrey for about eighteen months, and you know and and started to that's when I started to think I, I kind of enjoy um, this and you know he was always I wouldn't say he was generous but he was always encouraging you to to taste where you could and he was sending us off to you know tastings that he didn't want to go to and and you know he would give you a half decent discount on a bottle of wine if you if you wanted to take something home but so and and then you know, jeffrey was um a bit of a uh, a trailblazer and something he and it still is now that the trophy for the best pinot at the sydney show is the jeffrey crundle trophy and it was about a year or so before i started working for jeffrey that he first um, first donated that trophy. Up until then, there hadn't been a trophy for Pinot Noir at the at the Adelaide at the Sydney shows. So this is I think '92 is the first year he uh, offered it, and he was really pissed off for the first couple of years because it wasn't awarded. There didn't you know there didn't seem to be a, there wasn't a, a Pinot found worthy enough for a trophy at the Sydney show. Yeah, that doesn't really surprise me. I mean, how much no, Pinot was actually planted back then? Well, yeah, exactly, exactly. But, you know, he was going, these fussy pricks, you know, what's the point of blood? Because all he wanted to do was floor stack the trophy winner, you know, in the, in the front of the shop and just have this you know, big banner, the Jeffrey Crundle trophy winner. So finally, the year that I was working with him, uh, the trophy was awarded and he was thrilled until he found out that it was actually awarded to a Pinot made by Cellar Masters and he couldn't sell it anyway. So <laughs> oh, God. I, 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 saw, I, saw him, I saw him lose his, lose his bottle on, on many, many occasions, but I don't think I've ever seen him angrier than the year that you know, the, the trophy finally gets awarded, but it actually goes to a wine he can't sell. Oh. It was a good man, Jeffrey. But um, it was then, you know, after working with him for a little while, that I thought, Do you know what, I'm actually pretty keen on this, but I don't think I'm going to really go anywhere working with Jeffrey. So I, I tried to, I went looking for, uh, I went to a couple of other fine wine, wine retailers in Sydney. I went to Best Sellers first with David Matters Shop, which um, uh, produced Mike Benny. Still so going strong. That, that's there, yeah. It's still going on. Great shop. Love Tilly Divine is, you know, the fantastic wine bar is at the back of Best Sellers. It used to be the old, um, you know, storage um, area at Best Sellers, and there are some horrible, horrible stories that um, I won't share with you now, but I might share with you over a drink sometime of what used to happen back there. Um, <laughs> and then I, I went to I went to Five Way Sellers as well. Ian Cook's um, Five Way Sellers also and, also going still going strong. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and 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 
it's it's an amazing institution that place and it very much shaped the wine person that i am so um i, I mean one of the there. only other ones that you know certainly of that era i would say would, would have been ultimo yeah so there was it was really the three of us and we we all sort of used to work fairly well together um you know if we didn't have something that someone was looking for you know we would ring one of the other two and yeah we all knew each other's shops so well and 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 sufficiently yeah. distance away from each other i think that you know it's still a easily easy to um service a different um yeah, geographic and clientele and everyone had a slightly sort of different skew you know ultimo was was very strong on france we were we were stronger on italy you know bests um, you know, were really good on New Zealand. So there was, you know, everyone had a slight sort of specialty. I still remember going, walking into Five Ways, you know, one day looking for a job and Ian's mum, Ian Cook's mum, B, dear old B, was, was manning the shop at the time and um, I think Ian was on some junket in Orange. And she said, oh, look, I'll, I'll, I'll pass your details on to Ian and I'll, I'll let him know. And sort of two days later, I get this phone call goes on oh, nick it's uh, uh ian cook speaking my mother says i have to give you a job so can you come up and, <laughs> and see me so uh he must, no have, he must have uh, given her a good impression <laughs> well i don't know maybe maybe she just thought i've got to get someone in here so i'm not working <laughs> in here. yeah fair enough fair enough she was a great lady b so um and that 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 was you know that that's you know the most significant you know probably the most significant moment of you know my early wine career because that's when I, I really decided that this is what I was going to do once I started working with, with Cookie at Five Ways. Well, certainly um, working at Five Ways Cellars, not only do you get access to the kind of wines that uh, you know, are the envy of, uh, of most wine stores, uh, you know, particularly in terms of you know, really, really sought after Australian wines and imports as well, but you also have the clientele um you know that's it's 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 it is to be honest you know one of the wealthiest parts of australia um so so people are willing to spend some money yeah and that that's true but also like really um really good wine people as well and there's a guy called ken bignall who was a a regular customer and ken had been in, in like one of the longest running tasting groups in sydney and you know he would always you know after his monthly tasting group meetings he would, he would come back come through the shop the next day and he'd have you know the last half a glass of uh, you know a fantastic you know old grand cru burgundy or something that he'd you know decanted in the half bottles and things and then and sealed properly and, and brought in to give us a us a look and he was you know incredibly generous like that and and um, guys like Rupert Rosenblum is a former Wallaby um, and a, a lawyer, I think he was, in, in Sydney. But, you know, Rupert had this amazing cellar and would always, you know, make sure that, you know, the guys that worked in the shop, the young guys that worked in the shop could occasionally see some of the things that he had in his cellar. So there was, an, um, you know, real generosity like that from from fantastic wine people who who were prepared to share not only their knowledge but you know the bounty of their sellers as well yeah absolutely and and so where where did that kind of um experience at five way lead you on and presumably you were still into reading were you doing yeah, reading, any kind of writing well, at this time it, yeah well it did it started it, it, it's it, um i started writing about wine there because ian had a, a fairly um well-followed and, and, and well-supported newsletter he used to put out every month. And, like, this is so old school that, um, you know, we would we'd write it and then um, you know, save the files onto a disc and take the disc up to a printer in Bondi Junction and then, like, two days later come back and, you know, pick up six boxes of you know, this hard copy, two-colour um, 10 page newsletter of just you know what we've been drinking that month that we thought was was really interesting so um and ian and basically handballed that responsibility over to me i'd gone in there saying you know when i went for the job saying look i want to try and, and start 
writing a little bit. And so he said, all right, well, you can do this. And again, when you talk about the clientele of that place, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of um, old journos in, in Paddington as well. And, and you know, these, some of these guys who would be coming in and, um, and, and, you know, with the things highlighted in the newsletter and, and saying, who's writing this? And, you know, I'd sheepishly say, well, me, thinking I'm about to be told I'm an idiot. And you're know, like, you can you can write a bit, son. You know, maybe you should, you know, keep up with this sort of stuff. And and by the way, give me, you know, I'll take a six pack of of that wine you've written up. So mm. you know, there's this really kind of nice direct feedback on 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 the work you were doing. So, um, yeah, and I I start I'd spend you know afternoons sitting up in a little office upstairs. Well other guys are having to unload delivery trucks and everything else. And I just sort of sat at the desk and, 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 and wrote and I went, maybe this is, this is where I'm going to end up. I can see my future then and there. That, so just so had so no that's idea kind of where you there. started to, 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 to think about um, yeah. you know, mar- marrying your, your interest in wine and, yeah. you know, and you know your interest is, in, in literature or, you know, the written word. Well, yeah, yes. And, and, and the thing is, I just had no idea how to, how to then, where you took that, I, you know, I was fine working, you know, upstairs in a little office writing a, a newsletter for a wine shop, but how you got published was, you know, was just seen beyond me. And, you know, at that stage, you know, I always used to remember, I often would open the shop on a Saturday morning and the key thing would be get there in time to get a coffee and a bacon and egg roll from next door that, you know, might start settling the hangover. And then grab the papers, grab the Herald, Sydney Morning Herald, and grab the Australian, and you'd go and look to see what Hewan had written up in the in the Herald, and you'd look to see what Halliday had written up in the Australian, and then you'd, you know, if we had those wines in stock, you would go and get them, and you would bring them out to the front of the shop because people were going to be coming in that day with their copy of the newspaper, wanting to buy, you know, if it's a particularly strong review, wanting to buy the wines that had been written up. So I started to, you know, get an understanding of. Um, you know how there could be some influence as a, you know as a as a wine writer, but like I said I had no idea how you were going to. Yeah, it seemed to me the cl- most closed of closed shops. I just couldn't think that a young bloke in you know his late twenties was going to be doing what Hugh and Hook did, or what um, you know Peter Bourne did, or what James Halliday did. Yeah, right. So. How did you? This is this is the story because obviously because obviously <laughs> you are you are who you are you you know you 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 do what you do so how do we get to yeah. that point from there? So yeah, so I would like to say it's a combination of drive, ambition, and pure talent, but it's actually um, hitting up an editor at a party when he's in a very vulnerable moment. This is how I got the job, and I tell this story a lot without necessarily naming names, but. Um, a flatmate, I'm one of those guys that I first moved into a place in, you know, when I first moved to Sydney, he was moving to London and he was having a, having a farewell party. And he was a classical music journalist, which is probably an even dumber career choice than, than becoming a, a wine writer. It's probably even more limiting than wine writing. But God, I mean, cla- uh, just, just being a cla- classical musician is limiting enough. I know, let alone... And the, the great thing was the only the only um the only gigs he could really get at the time were in the um in the gay street press of Sydney, which was you know they, and they they were the days sort of the mid nineties. These were the glory days of 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 gay publishing in, in Sydney. Like neither of us were gay, but um, he was you know that was the gigs he would get, which meant we got great tickets to the opera and and everything else. And he would always say to me, he said, "I'm going to try and ask this." girl out so she wants to come to the opera with me if she says no you can come so I got to see a lot of opera (laughs) but for some reason it didn't it wasn't it wasn't the great chick pulling device that he thought it might be so you know we were well and truly considered um (laughs) you know a uh, a young uh, couple on the scene are going to the opera you know a couple of times a month but anyway I'm just going to move because I think someone is now. Um, so anyway, he 
um, had approached a friend of a friend who'd just been given the job as editor of a, uh, the Australian edition of a, a well-known international men's magazine, Masthead. And um, James had said to him, oh, you know, you need a classical music journalist. And this editor said, why the hell would I need a classical music journalist? Uh, but do you know anything about cars? And James goes, I could drive a car. He goes, right, you're the car rider. So James had said to me, you've got to hit this guy up. If you want to be a wine rider, now's your chance because this guy's giving jobs out like chocolates. So at this party, James's farewell party, I um, waited till a particularly opportune moment when I thought this, this editor was going to be feeling as good as, as he was going to be feeling all night. And I said to him, uh, hey, mate, do you need a wine writer for your magazine? He went, yeah, 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 yeah. Come and see me on, in the office on Monday and we'll talk. And I went, all right, beauty. So on Monday, I, I go up to the office all excited and, and ready to you know, stake my claim as a wine writer for this magazine. And we talk a bit about the party and everything else in his office. And then he says, I'll oh, come and meet the art director. I went, okay, I'm not sure why, but no worries. So we go into the art director's office and, and this guy says, oh, Johnny, this is Nick. Nick's the cartoonist I was telling you about. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, no, mate, wine writer. And he went, oh, shit, yeah. All right, um, yeah, okay, can you give me 500 words on, on a wine by the end of the week? And I went, yep, no worries. And then he said, oh, by the way, who the fuck was the cartoonist I was talking to there? <laughs> and I still don't, and I just, I don't know and I don't care. But that cartoonist missed out on a job and, and I ended up getting one. So I had to... Um, Maybe the cartoonist right. was, in his, his, was in even more a uh, vulnerable condition. Position, who knows? Forgot. <laughs> <laughs> it was a good party. So I then go, right, now what I have to do? And I went, I've got to go, no, I've got to get a wine that I can write about. And I went, well, one thing I know about these wine writers is they don't buy their own wine. So I rang Joe Holliman, who was at the time a Negs rep in Sydney. And um, I rang Joe and said, mate, have you got anything bouncing around in the back of your station wagon that you could drop off at my house? I've got to, I've got to write 500 words on something for this new magazine. So Joe came around about an hour later and he had a bottle of St. Hallett Faith Shiraz that he handed over. And that was the first thing I ever, ever had published was a, a small little review on, on St. Hallett's Faith Shiraz, hand-delivered by... Um, yeah. Tasmania's finest pen and wire producer. I have uh, to say that. And and well, another 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 former guest as well. So I'll have to listen back to that episode and see if I can link it up to get an idea exactly yeah, the time no, that yeah, might have right, happened. I, yeah, Joe and I became mates back in the Crundle Sellers days, going way way back when he was he was on the road for for negotiants, and 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 Jeffrey used to have this desk at the back of the shop that was covered in papers and books and you know it was just a, a, a crazy crazy mess but he also had this chair that all the reps who came to see him had to sit in and it was one of those you know old desk office chairs that had the four wheels on it so but he'd taken the back two wheels off so that if you sat in that chair you immediately sort of slip backwards and you're, you're in this prone and vulnerable position and he could lean over his desk and and shout at you. So all the reps used to hate coming to see him. And um, Joe and I bonded over over having to put up with with Jeffrey Crundle. Yeah, I shouldn't I shouldn't uh, make any comparisons to Melbourne based uh, retailers because it might get me in trouble. But uh, but it doesn't no, sound completely. Down there. <laughs> they're all sweethearts down there. Randall Pollard would never do that to anybody. Oh, of course not. Um, for, 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 so for, that was the that was the start. Um, what what sort of uh, yeah. how did the journey kind of evolve from there? Um, yeah, okay. So it, it's interesting. So I did that for a while. I um, yeah, obviously not enough to make a living. Um, you were you so, working at at Five Way. Yeah, yeah. And I actually then at one point I'd moved back to Adelaide for a brief period because I'd followed a girl back and that was a waste of time. But I'd worked at the Edinburgh Cellars, you know, one of the, the Edinburgh and East End Cellars are the true great wine shops of Adelaide. Most certainly. 
So I'd, um, I had, uh, came, came back to Adelaide for a little while, but then moved back to Sydney. Um, and then, so my mate then left that magazine and I thought, well, that's pretty much the end of my wine writing career. And I had started, I was working, I got a job, my one and only office job ever uh, was working, running the copy department at Cellar Masters uh, about 2000 and 2001. And I did that and um, it was while I was doing that that Judy Saris gave me a ring one day and said, are you able to go to Griffith at short notice? A guy called Colin Climo, who was wine writer for the Bulletin at the time, and Colin was writing for Gourmet Traveller Wine and was supposed to go out to Casella, who had just won the Jimmy Watson Trophy. And Colin, very sadly, got very sick very suddenly and, and, and died quite quickly. So... Um, this everything was in place and Colin was supposed to have gone out and written this story and at the last minute um, Judy asked me to go and go and do it so that was the first um, piece published in Gourmet Traveller Wine and then from that point um, I thought well maybe I can talk about myself as you know, someone who writes about wine for a living and, and that was um, that was sort of really useful and, and a start. And at the same time, that same editor who had given me my first gig started at ACP and, and was um, launching a new magazine and had um, said that, you know, asked me if I was interested in picking up some wine writing again. And I went, uh, yeah, sure. And that was actually a... Um, a big favour on his part and a bit of a leap of faith because I know he's told me the story often enough because he makes me, you know, constantly um, express my gratitude, you know, and tell him that I owe everything I am to him. We've become very good mates over the years. But he said when he was starting this new magazine, Men's Style magazine, and the publisher at the time who had a real interest in wine um, was saying, well, you're going to have a wine column in there and, and my mate, said, yes, yes, we'll have a wine column. And he goes, well, who are you going to get to write it? And my mate Peter would say, oh, Nick Ryan. And the publisher was saying, well, who the hell is Nick Ryan? He said, get, no, get Max Allen. Or at the time, this is how far back it goes, get Ben Canada. I think Phil, the publisher, was a bit of a Canada fan. So, And my mate you know, said, no, no, trust me, I, I, I like this guy's stuff. So he stuck with me. And then... Once you're within a, a publishing organisation like the old ACP, you, you know, if you're being seen in one of the mastheads, you would get a, you know, get a call from another editor. So that's how the, the, um, the Gourmet Traveller stuff came about. I ended up writing um, a bit for the Bulletin, um, which was always... I thought, you know, kind of significant because Len Evans, had, 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 you know, the first wine column in the country was Len's column in the Bulletin. So I thought that was kind of a, um, a bit of an achievement. And, and then that sort of started everything everything rolling. And I, um, I was doing such a poor job of running the copy department at Cellar Masters. That was all coming to a head. And I quit on the, the morning. I think I was going to get fired anyway. And... Um, rang a few people and said, meet me at the pub, I've just quit my job and I'm going to become a, a full-time wine writer, which is um, also interesting. So Phil Scott, who was the publisher at ACP at the time, and he published Gourmet Traveller and Gourmet Traveller Wine and Men's Style, the new Men's Style magazine, my mate Peter had taken me out to lunch with Phil because I was talking about thinking about... Um, quitting my job and, and becoming a full-time freelancer. And Phil, you know, sat me down at lunch and told me all the reasons why I was an idiot to think that, you know, that was a, a sensible thing to do and told me about all the horrible things that were going to happen to me as a full-time freelancer and don't even, you know, don't even think about it. And then a week later when I quit my, 
a job. I got a call from, from Phil Scott and said, I hear you quit your job. And I sort of went, yeah, I did and said, good. And he said, you know, if after everything I told you the other day, uh, you still went ahead and, and, and quit your job and you're going to do this, then you're doing it for the right reasons. So mm. um, and I always thought that was, that was a really smart, you know, smart ploy on Phil's behalf. So testing that was, yeah, so yeah, yeah. Are you, are you legit? Are you going to do this? And then that was uh, 18 years, or 17 years ago now, I think. So um, yeah, still, still at it. Although, you know, it's probably the, the confidence in this as a career has never been shaken like it has you know, lately. So have you, have you always been freelance? Yeah. Then? Yeah. Um, no one's silly enough to give me a, a full-time job. So, um, yeah, I've, I've had this regular column in the Sunday Mail in Adelaide for 10 years now, but that's, that's not a wine column. That's a whatever pops into my head column which has actually been really, um, really useful, I think, for the wine writing side of things because it's just, it's, it's, it's wise and nourishing to be able to step outside of wine every now and then and, 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 and write something else. And I think it just gives you a bit more perspective. And I think sometimes it is a failing of wine people that we don't, um, you yeah, know, that we we don't consider the world beyond wine enough and we um and we think that everyone in the world thinks about wine like like we do. And I look yeah, I mean I I kind of have found that um the writers that write about wine that I connect with more sort of have an element in their writing that comes from elsewhere that that they sort of you can see in their writing that they're influenced by other things. They think about wine in a different way. Um, and I guess that's kind of what I like to do um, with, with my communication as well is to sort of find people who have had a different journey and, and, and are you know, happy to talk about things that they're interested in that, you know, and rather than talking exclusively about wine, because ultimately, you know, it just shows that we are all real people. Yeah. Um, and, and, and we are trying to, you know, though, though we might know a bit more about wine than most people or the people that we're kind of trying to connect with, we, we are still trying to connect with them in some way. So contextualizing wine in a different way, I think is, um, quite refreshing and, and probably a little bit more, um, enjoyable for, for a lot of people, I think. Yeah, and that's what I always found that was really useful in, in those early days that, you know, writing for you know, genre magazines or, or category magazines really helped you find different ways and to communicate. So, you know, writing for you know, a high-end men's magazine, something like Men's Style, to then, you know, writing something in House and Garden or you know, in style magazine, which is, you know, again, obviously going to be a completely different demographic um, to writing, you know, I wrote, I wrote a piece about wine for comparing wine to cricketers in Inside Cricket magazine. So like, so just to find different ways, whereas I reckon if I just started with a, a straight up wine column, I, I might have struggled, I think, to really find a, find a voice by writing in a bunch of slightly different voices for different audiences you start to get a better handle of what your your actual um, your actual voice is so you know that would be a that would be a good bit of advice for anyone silly enough to consider you know doing something like this is to try and, and try and write about wine as you know in as many different um, ways as you can. Mm. And and looking at the kind of writing that you have done, particularly with wine, um, do you find that you have um, particular interest or affinity to certain stories or um, you know w- wines or wine people that you're particularly close to? Yeah, it's um, yeah, I, I do, and it's it is it's very much stories, and I think you've got to 
think about what kind of wine writer you are at heart. And I think there are there are people who are you know who are wine people first and use writing as a as a a way of um, transmitting the knowledge that they have. And then I think there are there are writers who um, find wine as the subject that 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 you know, inspires their writing. So and then I kind of think I'm somewhere in between that um, you know I fell into working in wine by accident but kind of got interested in it but you know it was always thought that writing was going to be what I would do anyway so I always I always think of myself maybe more as, as a writer who happens to write about wine rather than a wine person who happens to write and I think finding that distinction is important which is again you know why what I write it to you know that they're Sort of more, it's either a column or a you know, a feature piece. It's it's not a whole series of of tasting notes and and scores. Um, you know, I don't call myself a wine critic. You know, for example, um, because that's not necessarily what I'm doing. And and so, um, you know, I've I've never published points because I don't know if the world needs my points. I'm pretty sure it doesn't. So, um, you know, for me, it's very much it is the story behind a wine, and and the story of the, of the people behind the wine as much as as the wine itself um, is is the thing that gets me excited and gets me interested. Yeah, I mean, like that's that's pretty much my philosophy as well. Um, I, you know, while I like to kind of create. Um, images and stories or not create stories, but, you know, pass on stories um, rather than assigning a, a numerical score to a wine. Um, I think that whilst it can be useful to kind of for benchmarking purposes, um, most people, I think um, it, it has less relevance, particularly as we've seen sort of score creep and, and that kind of thing, um, yeah. you know, quite timely considering uh, I- like, the wine companions just just launched and again it, at this time of year that that discussion comes up um every year um but but where i think people and it's potentially where like the, the sort of the growth in things like instagram have come about because it's not necessarily wine wine communication around technical tasting notes and, and information about the viticulture and winemaking and a score. It's, it's images, it's, it's feelings. It's kind of. Well, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's look, you know, I've been, I've been working with wine in some sort of capacity now for, you know, 25 years, but, and I know, you know, enough about to the basic processes of winemaking and, and viticulture, I guess, to, you know, to be able to you know, have, a, have an understanding of what's going on when I talk to, you know, viticulturists or, or winemakers. But I'm in no way, an, you know, an expert and I don't ever claim to be. And I just sometimes think that making pronouncements on high require a, a bit more grounding in the facts than, than, than I'm prepared to go and get. So, you know, what I'm, you know, my writing is only, it's always going to be quite personal and, and it's, you know, it's what I, you know, what I think of a wine and whether that's what you think of a wine or what, you know, another reader thinks of the wine, well, that's up for the, up to them to decide. I'm no oracle. I'm just someone who's, um, you know, met someone interesting in a vineyard and I want to tell their story. Yeah. It, it's a bit more op-ed rather than critical or, or report, reportage. Yeah, yeah. And and I'm, I'm, I'm just probably too lackadaisical to, to be anything else. But I, I just think that's, that's my job is to go out and, you know, find some interesting people and drink some really interesting wines and then, and then share that as, as, as widely as, as I can. And, and whether, you know, if that, if that appeals to a particular reader, then, then, then well and good. You know, it's funny that I, um, 
you know, and, and I, I like, I always say sometimes that you know, the worst thing in the world would be writing nothing but heaps and heaps of tasting notes <coughs> because I think that can get a little tedious. And, but I do, you know, I, I do find, you know, real satisfaction in, 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 in sort of nutting out a wine in your head and, and finding a, an interesting way to describe it without getting too stupid. And there have been, you know, I, don't, I think there have been more crimes committed against metaphor in, in wine writing than, than just about anything else. But, you know, if you can find interesting ways to, to capture the, the soul and the essence of a wine without going into the standard, um, you know, it looks like this, it smells like this, it tastes like this, it finishes like this sort of haiku that a lot of wine notes um, can be, then, um, then I think, you know, you can do something, something really interesting and, and really worthwhile. There'll always be people who will go, what the hell is that shit? And, and it's funny, you know, the joy of writing for the Australian is that, you know, there are always people willing to comment online on, on what's been written. And I know everyone says, don't read the comments. And, um, but I can't help myself and I usually do. And invariably it is people who, um, who you know, raising eyebrows at, you know, a particular ways chosen to describe a Turn wine. Turn a phrase. You go, oh, for God's sake, it's just, you know, fermented grape juice. Well, yeah, it is. But if I ever, you know, just tell us, it's, tell us good or not. And I said, well, it's a bit financially limiting. If I had a, you know, 750 word column in The Australian to write about a wine and went, yeah, it's good. There's a lot of blank space in the paper and I'll end up getting a dollar twenty, you know, <laughs> and I can't feed my family on a dollar twenty. So, um, there's one particular commenter on there I've noticed. He's done it now a couple of times where he goes, the only people that bullshit more than wine writers are cricket writers. And I send a note to Peter Lawler and Gideon Haig every time he, um, he <laughs> this guy comments about my tasting notes going, I feel like I'm in good company. <laughs> well, um, yeah, like I, I can see why you uh, got on so well with uh, Joe. As as a, <laughs> as a former cricketer himself, uh, yeah. No, uh, do you know what the thing about? So Joe plays in this um, the 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 greatest cricket da- game in the country is every year late January, early February, the five way sellers versus best sellers cricket game that Mike Benny and I and a, a couple of other guys started uh, it was twenty years ago last year, I think. Um, and Joe plays in that and plays the best sellers because Joe actually did work at one stage in both those shops in five way sellers and best sellers. But Joe is um, as fat and unfit and as many stivers as he smokes. Joe's still got the skills that um, he must have had as a as a much younger and, and fitter man. He can still stand up at the stumps to just about any bowler that's coming, and um, he doesn't miss many. David David Boone must be his absolute hero. <laughs> there's a um, yeah. There's a there's Joe's got a great David Boone story that I won't steal from him. He should he should tell you, but he's got some good David Boone stories. And there's actually I just saw a photo the other day of Joe as a as a as a very young cricketer, and he was um, he looked like one of those guys from Bros. I don't do you remember Bros. That, that I I don't game? remember them, but I've only I, I know of them from references in in. TV shows yeah, and movies. Yeah, the, the, music, the music was pretty forgettable, but uh, the, the look was um, something very memorable and, and, and Joe looked just like one of them. <laughs> but that cricket game, if you're ever in Sydney in, in late January, early, early February, down at uh, Victor Trumper Oval in, in Paddington, it's the only, one of the only cricket games in the world where, um, you know, the, the first drinks break is, is, is magnificent, you know, Losing and prune cabinets and and you know, little hand, hand grenades of manthanier going out to to people fielding on the fence and it's it's a fantastic day. Jesus, sounds a bit loose. And the, <laughs> it was it was a few years ago. I have video footage of it because um, it was one of the rare occasions where five way sellers actually won. The the, the ledger is very much in best sellers' favour, 
we say they cheat, they always stack their team. But um, there's one year we decided we we're going to try and start a tradition where the losing captain had to drink vermouth from the winning captain's box. Oh. So I still have footage of, um, yeah, Mike Benny having to drink vermouth from a, um, a recently worn cricket protector. That's something I would like to see. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll send you a copy. Although, considering the kind of wines that Mike's into, it probably he would have been. Yeah, well, that's it. Yeah, it's probably an improvement on <laughs> some of the stuff he drinks. Anyway, on that uh, on that note, love him um, dearly. Yeah, uh, thank you very much, Nick. I really do appreciate. Thanks, uh, Jones. It's been good you, chatting. Uh, uh, dialing in, and uh, eventually, I do look forward to us being able to catch up uh, over a drink or two. Um, if people would like to follow you online, if that's something you'd like to happen, do you want to share any social media accounts you have? Uh, yeah, look, it's 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 Nick Ryan Wine, one word at, at all the various social things. I should get a website up and running at some point. I am planning to do it. I've had uh, had the bones of one up for about three years, but things don't, you know, things move slowly. In mate, Nick that's Ryan. nowhere near as long as Jane Faulkner. Okay, <laughs> well, that's a, that's a journey. How long has it been ready to go? I, I think it's probably like five, five to seven years, something like that. Yeah, so I guess her, knowing Jane as I do, I'd be saying hers is the sa- held up for the same reason that the tech person who's helping out exactly. has done everything they've got to do. They've just said now, fill in the copy to drop in, and they're probably waiting on the copy as my tech person is. So. Okay. I think I think Jane James is that she's had people good. do it and then and then bugger off overseas or get a job somewhere and say oh, I can't do it anymore. And yeah, no, Janie always makes me feel good, but now she's made me feel even better. <laughs> uh, Nick, uh, I really do appreciate it. Um, Thanks, and uh, of course, uh, stay safe and uh, and healthy in the, yes, the current situation. Yes. All right, you too, mate. Thanks a lot. Cheers. And thank you, as always, for joining me on this episode of The Vincast. I have been James Scarcebrook, otherwise known as the Intrepid Wino. Uh, you can follow me on social media at Intrepid Wino on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. You can also check out my website, intrepidwino.com, which has uh, all the episodes of the podcast, as well as lots of different writing I've done in the past, uh, and some YouTube videos, uh, including tasting uh, Australian wines. Um, if you are interested in supporting my wine business, which is Vino Intrepido, um, please do head to the website vinointrepido.com. Uh, I make a range of um, Italian varietal wines from Victorian vineyards, uh, and I'm really excited to start bottling my 2020 wines uh, very soon. Uh, and um, yeah, you can follow Vino Intrepido on Instagram and Facebook at Vino Intrepido. Um, if you do enjoy the podcast, please do make sure you subscribe on your listening app or platform of choice. Uh, and as I mentioned at the beginning, I really appreciate people leaving a rating and a review. It does help me immensely. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'd love to get more people listening to the show. Um, but yeah, uh, thanks again, guys. Uh, like I said, I've got more episodes coming up uh, until then. Bye.